To start us off this morning, here is the Praise Gathering Choir, and I will sing the wondrous story.
that was the, well, it's an early recording, actually, of the Praise Gathering Choir with I Will Sing the Wondrous Story. Now it's David's turn to introduce our next piece. Jonathan Aitken was a prominent politician who was sent to prison for perjury. Michael Barclay talks to Jonathan about his prison experiences and the importance of music in his life. You've written, Jonathan, about those very dark hours when you first entered Belmarsh, one of the toughest prisons in the country. What do you recall of that extraordinary change in your circumstances? Well, of course, I've got vivid memories of many things. I suppose what I most remember is the first few moments in prison and you go into a room called the cage, which is a big iron-barred enclosure. And it was like the Wild West in the sense that uh, it was full of people who'd just been sentenced. And I discovered that with the habitual optimism of many criminals, most of them had thought that juries would believe every word they said, and if that went wrong, judges would be very lenient. I, on the other hand, was expecting what was going to happen to me. I pleaded guilty. I knew, thought my sentence was fair. So it wasn't in a bad state, but, boy, there were people in fights and weepings and torment, bashing their heads against the ground. And that was a pretty wild scene, I couldn't believe how sort of crazy it was at the very beginning and then the reception cell of the cage. And how did the other prisoners treat you? Because in a way, um, here was the ultimate toff in their eyes. That's an outsider's view, which is <laughs> very often repeated by journalists. In actual fact, I was just another guy with a funny accent. And I was lucky. I managed to get along with my fellow prisoners very quickly. Uh, partly, I think, because... That's what politicians do when they're getting votes. They're just getting uh, along with their guys in the wing. But secondly, I wrote a lot of letters uh, for people who were bad at literacy skills, and this transformed me from being sort of that MP geezer or that Tory minister geezer. Thinks, oh, he's not a bad bloke. He helped me with my letter to my girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And um, so I, I didn't have a bad prison journey at all in terms of my fellow prisoners. There was a camaraderie that built up. There is, absolutely, there is. I I think it's a bit of a cliche, of course, but being at an English public school, boarding school, is in a way quite a good preparation for prison. I mean, you have to get on with your friends, you're not at home, you're cut off. I'm afraid those sort of jokes are basically true. That mm. <laughs> school food is <obviously> rather <laughs> worse than prison food and the sort of atmosphere. And it's a rather surprising thing in prisons. Very tough people who look as though they're muscular and big, heavy men. They would actually be the, some of the ones who collapsed emotionally very quickly because they'd never been away from home. They'd never sort of knocked around where you do it certain kinds of school, or indeed in life's experiences. So prisons full of surprises. Well, you served seven months of your 18-month sentence in different uh, jails, but I think you were able to listen to music, weren't you? Yes, when I got to an open prison, the rules are quite uh, relaxed in all kinds of areas, and one of the good rules that's relaxed is the prisoner can have a CD player. And I made the most of this, and many of my evenings after bang up whatever it's called locked down I used to put on the headphones and listen to bits of music which I 
hugely enjoyed. And, and go into another world. Go into another world. Except that this world is related to the one you were in, isn't it? It's the Prisoner's Chorus from Fidelio. Yes, well, that, that was a bit, <laughs> a bit of a cliche. <laughs> but as I was part of a Prisoner's Chorus, I just enjoyed this music, which is Beethoven at one of his best moments. Prisoner's Chorus from the first act of Beethoven's Fidelio, Nicolaus Arnoncourt conducting the Arnold Schoenberg Choir and the Chamber Orchestra of Europe. We'll be coming back to Michael Barclay and Jonathan Aitken, but here's a hymn with a strong Welsh connection. In fact, don't worry if you don't understand the first verse because it's in Welsh, but this is Here is Love Vast as the Ocean. That song was very big in Wales from early in the 20th century. Here is love, 
vast as the ocean. Now we go back to Michael Barclay talking to Jonathan Aitken. I suppose it's not uncommon for people in prison, Jonathan Aitken, to find God, but your spiritual journey had actually begun some time before you went to prison, hadn't it? Yes, it had. But I think I was, for most of the time before prison, at best a sort of half-Christian, which I now think is about as useful as being half-pregnant, but at the time I thought it was okay just to go to church and uh, not really keep the teachings. But I think, you know, adversity is often the gateway to a deeper faith, and certainly in prison I had masses of time to read, to think, to pray. It was a very good experience spiritually, and then after I came out of prison I went to the one place in Britain which had worse food and more uncomfortable beds than a prison which was an Anglican theological college where I studied <laughs> proper theology for two years. And it was a good journey, but it, a lot of it took place in prison. Your conversion um, probably didn't surprise you, was met with scepticism in some quarters. Uh, did, did that upset you at all? It did a little bit at the beginning. Bucketfuls of scepticism indeed were put in my head. But then I realised that, uh, well, why should I care about any of this? I'm doing what I'm doing for an audience of one, not for some (laughs) journalist on a newspaper. And so I relaxed about it pretty quickly. To what extent, for you, um, is the religious experience connected to music? And in some ways, is it similar? Well, it certainly is connected. I love good spiritual music. And I'm part of a church, St. Matthew's Westminster, which has an outstanding choir. And I love that side of the spiritual life, but it has to be linked, I think, to the teachings and to the scriptures. And one of the areas which I did a lot of study in in prison were the Psalms, which, of course, were originally musical pieces. They were things that the pilgrims sang on their way up to Jerusalem. And we still have beautiful music to psalms sung by great cathedrals on the whole. And I used to love listening to the psalms while in prison. Some of the beautiful words and there were some beautiful chants to the psalms. So that was very much part of my journey and indeed still is. I love hearing a, a good psalm well sung. Which which one have you chosen for us? Well, the one I've chosen is Psalm 24. It's a particularly sort of jolly psalm about... Um, uh, who is the king of glory? Lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be lift up your everlasting doors. And it's tremendously cheering. I mean, most of the psalms were linked to cultic ceremonies in their time, and this one must have been something to do with a king entering Jerusalem, and uh, it's magnificent.
earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Psalm 24 in its setting by Joseph Barnby, performed by the choir of Westminster Abbey, directed by James O'Donnell. And the organist was Robert Quinney. And Michael Barclay was talking to Jonathan Aitken. Music? And this is the Billy Graham London 1966 choir. It's an earlier tune for Oh Happy Day. Happy day. This is uh, Jane Johnson with God's uh, invitation, which is Come to Me.
Music's Loft Sessions, Jen Johnson and Come To Me. Here's David again. Ernie Ray has a radio programme called Beyond Belief. This week we hear him talking to a former Islamist extremist, Majid Nawad, about Animal Farm, the book by George Orwell, published 75 years ago, but still very relevant today. Majid Nawaz is the founding chairman of Quilliam, a counter-extremist think tank that seeks to challenge the narratives of Islamist extremists. He hosts a radio show on LBC. He was born in Essex to a British-Pakistani family. In his teens, he joined an extreme Islamist group, Hizbutariya, and this led to his arrest in Egypt in December 2001. He was in prison for four years, but his life was turned around when he read Animal Farm. I was sent to prison because um, in Britain at 16, I joined a legal Islamist organisation called Hizbut Tahrir, which was an extreme Islamist organisation. I now, after prison, obviously, disavowed and disagree with the views of that organisation. However, in Egypt, when I was there, I was still a member. And it was after the 9-11 attacks, the security climate, of course, during the war on terror completely shifted. And they rounded up every Islamist they could, and uh, we were among them. I was actually there as a student to complete the mandatory third year of my Arabic degree because I was studying Arabic at SOAS. When you were in prison, you mixed with some uh, interesting people. It was a sort of who's who of Islamist terror. Mm, Yeah. The assassins of Egypt's former president, Anwar Sadat, were held there with me as were the founders of Gamal al-Islamiyah, which was Egypt's largest terrorist group. The prison was for Islamists, so that included those who'd been convicted for terrorist crime, those who had not, such as Muslim Brotherhood members, who were Islamist but not terrorists. It included everybody who had the audacity to think differently to Hosni Mubarak. What changed your attitude when you were in prison? Well, a lot of things. I was uh, locked in there for four years with some of the leading jihadists of Egypt, so I had a lot of time to discuss and debate But the the main thing that changed me is um, reading a lot of literature. And uh, I'd say top of that list would have been George Orwell's influence on me. And Animal Farm in particular. See, the interesting thing with Animal Farm is it's a dystopic book about what could happen, a bit like Lord of the Flies, William Golding's Lord of the Flies, which I also really, really appreciate. What could happen when ideals are left to to themselves uh, and go unchecked? And it, it actually... Animal Farm, the dystopia, is on a farm. In Lord of the Flies, the dystopia is on an island. But they're very similar in a way that innocent followers who really are idealistic follow individuals who believe in their ideals. But once uh, the equation of power is factored in, human nature, I suppose, choose power over the ideals. And of course, when you're in something because of idealism, you're not worried about the checks and balances because you think, well, I believe in it. He believes in it. This is our cause. Now, of course, they're the dangers in Animal Farm. That's the danger in Lord of the Flies. I saw that happening in prison. I was living an Animal Farm 
equivalent in the cell blocks with the Islamists and jihadists. They were governing their own cell blocks. And I saw how it was to live under their administration. And, and so I was living Animal Farm, quite literally. Was there any particular passage in Animal Farm that influenced you? The most shocking and depressing part of it comes at the end. Apart from sending off Boxer uh, for horse meat, so the betrayal, it's really poignant how those sorts of regimes that speak in the name of communism will encourage people to work for the collective, and yet the individual is disposable once that collective deems them no longer necessary. The ending of the book was also, I think, really, really significant because, of course, the hypocrisy of the pigs walking on their two hind legs and the pigs being indistinguishable from man, again, is the nature of how power corrupts. I'm fascinated by the fact that when you came out of prison and you came back to Britain, you stayed in Hizbuteria for, I think, a year. Why did you do that? Well, if anyone's been a member of an um, ideological organisation, such as an Islamist ideological organisation, for 10 years... Uh, and married into it with a child, one would understand why asking such a question is really indicates, I, I would suggest, a lack of understanding as to how difficult it is to come out of such organisations. Because you paid a big price when you did come out. Yeah, you lost a lot of friends, your marriage broke up. Yeah, it must yeah. have been very difficult. Yeah, yeah, and that, that's why, you know, it takes such a long time to try and pull yourself out of these organisations. Most people, even if they manage to pull themselves out of the organization, get on with their lives and want a quiet life because of the trauma and the difficulties in their path of doing anything else, especially challenging that ideology. It's been a very, very difficult 10 to 12 years waking people up to the dangers of Islamist extremism, and it took ISIS to emerge for people to finally see that. But it was very, very, you know, it was hard to get people to see that. So think 10, 11 years ago, and it was even harder. That was Majid Nawaz. Jean, what did you make of that interview? I find it very affecting, not least because it tells you that intelligent people reflecting on their lives and their circumstances can come to grips with things that basically give them their identity. And there's something very brave about that. I think the other thing is that Animal Farm is a book about how persuasive and how lovely and how necessary believing things is and how really decent people, good people, honourable people can have their beliefs manipulated. And so in that sense, I think that interview gives you some sense of the personal experience that goes, in a way, goes through Animal Farm. You as a reader, I think... He never lectures you. He never tells you what to think. But he does give you multiple perspectives on the disorienting destruction of the idealism. So I think it's a really interesting interview. Michael? I think um, from Majid's very interesting comments about his own progress that it illustrates how Animal Farm is a work which enables us to think about our own environments. It's a work very much of 1945, but yes. it's a work also of contemporary literature today. Music, and here's Macapella with the tune The Rowan Tree, for I heard the voice of Jesus say, Come unto me and rest. of 
Jesus say, come on to me and rest. Lay down thy weary one, lay down thy head upon my breast. I came to Jesus as I was, weary and worn and sad. I found in him a resting place, and he has made me glad. I heard the voice of Jesus say, Behold, I down and drink and live. I came to Jesus and I drank of that life-giving stream. My thirst was quenched, my soul revived, and now I live in him. Jesus say, I am this dark world's light. Look unto me, thy morn shall rise, and all thy day be bright. I looked to Jesus, and I found in him my star, my sun. And in that light of life I'll walk Till travelling days are done I looked to Jesus And I found in him my star, my sun And in that light of life I'll walk Till travelling the voice of Jesus say come unto me and rest that came from Macapella with another sonnet from Malcolm Gaunt coming up next but here's David to tell us about it Malcolm Gaunt has written a series of poems based on some of George Herbert's poetic themes this week we hear Malcolm reading about peace and it's followed by Samuel Barber's Adagio Peace not as the world gives, not the victor's peace, not to be fought for, hard won or achieved, just grace and mercy, gratefully received, an undeserved and unforeseen release as the cold chains of memory and wrath fall from our hearts before we are aware 
their rusty locks all picked by patient prayer. Till closed doors open, and we see a path descending from a source we cannot see, a path that must be taken hand in hand, only by those forgiving and forgiven who see their saviour in their enemy. So reach for me, we'll cross our broken land and make each other bridges back to heaven. was part of Samuel Barber's Adagio. A bit of a contrast with the music coming up now though because it's Elvis and Reach Out to Jesus.
Yes, that was Elvis, and the song was Reach Out to Jesus, He's Reaching Out to You. We'll leave you with Laura Flores, and from an album called Samba Psalms, this is Mercy Everlasting. Shadow fall from me My spirit dances 